And the title is The Fear Factor of Fanatical Worship. The Fear Factor of Fanatical Worship. So what are you afraid of? Um, and just to kind of get us uh, in the mode of getting ready for God's Word, um, you know, uh, if I give Brother Danny stand and just recite Psalms 91 for us uh, from memory. Can't see Now you see the look on his face, there was fear. I, I, I got a direct look of fear. Now, we would uh, think that all of us as good believers have every bit of the word memorized, right? And, and so even pastor, you could ask me any time, I should be able to recite anything from the Word of God. No, I mean, that, that drove a little fear. Danny panicked a little, like, what are you thinking, pastor? As long as I've known you, you've never done that to me. Yeah, I know, I know, that's why I picked you. Um, but certainly, in your life, there's probably something you're afraid of. If I was to bring in the psychologist's couch here, have you lay down and I get my pencil and paper and I sit down and draw the glasses down and, and begin to delve into the very recesses of your childhood and, and see what's hidden in those dark places in your heart, that we'd come across some fears. Maybe some, the fear of heights, some, uh, the fear of spiders, snakes, germs. Now, I'm not so afraid of germs. I can't get dirty, work on greasy cars. But it, as much as I love my kids, I'll kiss them on the face, good night but I don't share my drinks with them. I don't share my drinks with anybody. We've had friends before, another guy my age, that would think it was okay. Here, you want thirsty? You want some of my drink? Like, no, thank you. Straw or no straw? No, thank you. And, you know, I, so I do have a little bit of fear of germs, I guess. Some clowns. We know that some clowns were acting like clowns, dressing as clowns, to scare people that are afraid of clowns recently. They've been in the news. And, you know, just different things. Uh, flying. Some people have to be coaxed onto a plane. They're afraid. Public speaking. You know, what I've learned is that there are some people who aren't really afraid of anything, though, but should be. We've got a longtime friend, someone I've known since I was in sixth grade, and he's in his 50s now, and he was on my dad's church board. His name's Brad Selleck. He lives about two miles from where we do now. But Brad is one of those guys that all my life I've known him, he's been a risk taker. When I got out of the Navy and I learned to repel, we went down the Buffalo River and repelled some 300-foot cliffs and did things I'd never do again. But he, he's still adventurous. And so recently, he decided to buy a contraption that's like a parasail. It's like one of those parachutes. But you strap a motor and a fan on your back, and you take a run, and then you fly around with it. Well, most people, if the engine breaks and the fan don't work, then it's no good. Not Brad. Brad decides with his brother, who's a lot like him, that they're going to tie a 200-foot rope onto the back of one of those gator, four-wheel drive things, and, hey, we'll just pull me up in the air, and when I get up high enough, I'll untie it, and I'll float down. Well, the, the rope came loose, and so they decided, well, let's double it up and make 100 feet. And so he said, no time flat, he's 100 foot in the air. And he's flying, and he's coming up right over the top of the, the four-wheel drive vehicle, and his brother begins to feel the vehicle lift from, the, from there. So... He decides, well, I'll speed up a little, and it's still lifting. He's like, well, I can't even see him. Maybe I'll turn a little so I can see where he's at. Well, Brad said, well, it's because he was passing him. And when he turned the vehicle, it collapsed the sail, and he took a 100-foot drop straight to the ground from 100 feet down immediately. Fortunately, they're over sand, and he did survive, but he broke some vertebrae and punctured a lung and all kinds of stuff. And, you know, he's already figuring out what he's going to do next. So there's some people who should have fear and don't. But researching the word fear for this study, I discovered there are many people who suffering from, suffer from debilitating, bewildering phobias. 
chins. Yeah, chins. There are people who are actually afraid of chins. Now they have a chin, so obviously they're not afraid of themselves, but they are afraid of chins. I don't understand it. I don't know how you can be afraid of a chin, but there are people who are documented as being afraid of chins. Cats. Now, I'm allergic to cats, so I'm afraid of them for a different reason. I don't want my eyes to swell up and to have a hard time breathing. But there are people who kittens terrify them. What about chopsticks? Did you know there are people who have a phobia about chopsticks? I mean, they're just laying there. I'm thinking unless somebody's attacking me with a chopstick, I'm not afraid of chopsticks. But there are people who are afraid of chopsticks. And sermons. There's actually a phobia about sermons. Now, I know what you're thinking. Those people probably have heard one of Pastor CJ's sermons, so now there's a phobia. But that's not true. There are people who just have a, a fear or a phobia of sermons. String. Now, I don't know if they're afraid of getting tangled up in it or what it is, but there are people who are afraid of string. So, listen, if you're a note-taker this morning, we're going to go through some truths that I want to share to you, uh, share with you today about fear. And truth number one is fear is an emotion you can't trust. I, I've used this uh, in a sermon before, so if you're here for it, I apologize for a reason. But um, Bob Newhart was on uh, some kind of like mad TV or something there, and he was, a, he was the psychologist. And a lady comes in, and uh, she wants to get some help. And he comes in, he says, okay, well, I only charge um, $5, and I don't make change, and it's non-refundable, but I charge $5. And she says, okay, well, um, she pulls out and, she has a 10. He says, well, I said I don't make change. So she pays $10. She pays double. And he begins and she says, I'm afraid of being buried in a box. And Bob Newhart says, well, have you ever been buried in a box before? She's like, no. He says, do you know anybody that's ever been buried in a box? No. He says, okay, so let me understand something. You've never been buried in a box. You don't know anybody that's been buried in a box. But you're, you're deathly afraid of being buried in a box. She says, yes. He says, well, I have... I have two words for you, and I think it'll fix all your problems. And uh, so if you're ready, I'll tell them to you. And she says, okay, well, do I need to write them down? He goes, well, you can, but I think they're easy enough. And she says, well, what is it? And he says, stop it. S-T-O-P space I-T, stop it. And wouldn't it, be that e- wouldn't it be nice if it's that easy if in our fears we could just say stop it to ourselves and stop the fear? But fear is an emotion you can't trust. Because you can't really control the fear sometimes on your own power that it just happens. And you can't let fear lead you uh, because it's emotion you can't trust. Here's what else I discovered. I discovered truth number two. Fear is also a tool that God can use. Now, wait a minute. You're, you know, I just told you that we can't trust it, but you're telling me God can use it. Well, there's different kinds of fear. And God can use some kind of fears to help us there's a good fear that is holy and helpful and then there's a bad fear that's unhealthy and certainly can be debilitating and incapacitating if someone's afraid of heights and they go up to stand next to someplace high there's people who literally freeze and they have to be drug away because they can't move the bad fear can do those kind of things to you and it and it doesn't let you be who you're supposed to be for instance, how many of you know that there are bad drivers in northwest Arkansas? You raise your hands. So we all know that. Some of you may have followed someone into church today. Actually, I have just saw a funny story. It has to do with Danny. So since I'm on a Danny roll, we'll just pick on Danny some more. 
So, you know, some of you know my past when I was away from the Lord was around outlaw bikers. And so um, when I first started pastoring here, we had a lot of the well-known outlaw clubs who guys that I was either reaching for the Lord or had recently made a decision came. And one of them decided to roll in on a different Sunday and visit me and got behind Danny driving here. <laughs> Danny drives trucks for a living, so he's used to obeying the laws because it's job security, right? And so... Anyway, this guy, he's used to driving, you know, the speed limit's a suggestion. And then you have your suggestion, right? And so <laughs> Danny gets to church, and they finally meet, find out that he was the one tailgating the whole time on his Harley. And uh, Danny said, well, I thought you were trying to get in my back seat. <laughs> so, you know, but so maybe some of you had interaction on the road before you got here. And many of you know I'm very clear about my own struggles. I figure if I tell you what pastor deals with, you can relate, and um, so I don't get into road rage anymore, but I get very frustrated on the road. You know, I started out when, when God was trying to work on me that I wanted to motion people over and have a physical conversation about the way they're driving behind me. I don't do that anymore, but I, I now, since I don't cuss either, I just come up with creative names for them. And so now I'm working on that because I don't want to teach my kids to call people names, right? But in a moment of frustration and, and lack of, of trust in the Lord, someone's endangering my kids by riding or tailgate, I just come up with an interesting name for them. And, you know, we, we all have these things where I'm afraid of them hurting us, so I react badly out of it. So I can't trust that fear because it will make me, uh, cause me to make bad decisions that are not Christ-like. You know, it's good to buckle up. Why do we do that? Are you really afraid of how bad a driver you are? Why do you put your seatbelt on? It's the other people. We're fearful of the bad decisions other people will make or could make uh, that could cause us harm. Well, I also see in the Word of God that there's an example of good fears and bad fears. Uh, if you want to turn to Exodus chapter 20, we're going to start in verse 18. Exodus chapter 20, verse 18. If you don't have it yet, just say, hold on. All right. Chapter 20 and verse 18. All right. Now all the people witnessed the thundering and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood far off. Then they said to Moses, you speak with us. And we'll hear, but let not God speak with us, lest we die. And Moses said to the people, note this, he says, Do not fear, for God has come to test you. And that is his and that and that is that his fear may be before you, so that you may not sin. So the people stood afar off, but Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. So I want to pause right there and draw your attention to what we see. See, we see that there's a good and bad fear. God says, listen, if you're going to be afraid of something, don't be afraid of me or my commandments. The Hebrew word for fear appears more than once in this passage, and although it's the same word, it directs where the fear should be placed. On one hand, God says, I don't want you to dread me. I don't want you to panic because of me, but there's, this is what I want you to do. I want you to revere me, and I want you to respect me, and I want you to do, um, uh, to do uh, is dread and panic over sin because it separates us from each other. 
I'm God, revere me, respect me, panic and, and, and dread over sin. Another example I've used in the past, um, when I was in Bible college, I had a professor that knew my parents before I was born. He, he, he had um, done a revival at our church when my mom was pregnant for me and, uh, with me, and, and he had been there, and, and Brother Harris, he was a very thin, tall, slender man in his 80s when I started Bible college. He still rode his bicycle to, to Bible school uh, as a professor and would tuck his dress pants in his socks and wear a suit on bike. And I thought it's pretty interesting at that age to still be riding a bicycle, but he was a very well-respected man. Um, soft-spoken at times, but could really preach. And He went to a church in, uh, that was one of the oldest churches by the Assembly God headquarters, Central Assembly. I went to a different church, but I had started to date this girl in Bible college that went to that church. And so I went with her to visit her church. And this girl, you know, I know I talk a lot, but this girl is very chatty. And uh, I've been raised not to talk in church. But she just kept whispering over it and talking to me about anything, everything. You know, and I was getting nervous. Well, I didn't know, um, know that, you know, anybody's watching this. But the next day I had Dr. Harris's class for homiletics, which is where you practice preaching. You practice in front of your peers. And I delivered a sermon that day. And I got done. And Dr. Harris stood after the class at the end and said, Brother Brummett, can I see you after class today? And that's exactly how he sounds. And so I said, yes, sir. And so everybody's leaving. I'm thinking there's some comment about my sermon. I hope it's good. And he told me to have a seat in the small desk. And I sat there. And just like if it was my grandpa, he kind of leaned down. He said, Brother Brummett, I was sorely disappointed in you yesterday as I watched as you and a young lady sat in church and had a conversation all during the reading of God's word and the delivery of the message. And he said, I, I hope that I wouldn't see that kind of behavior from you again. And I began to sob. I don't know what happened. I broke, something broke in me, and it just, I just began to sob. And, you know, I, I was so fearful of, of what was going to come after that. It's like, uh, you know, I thought I had his respect, and, and now I've broken that trust and that respect, and could I get it back? And he even, you know, he'd even waited to make sure everybody was gone, nobody could hear. He was very respectful of me. He, he saw that I was broken, and he didn't try to, belabor it he actually will quietly walked out left me i sat for another hour here a grown man in my early 20s and just sobbing because he he felt like a grandfather figure and i'd i'd broken his the respect he had for me and so you know there is a healthy kind of fear you know the kind of fear that you you want to protect something and you don't want to 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 break it if i was to do a more dangerous demonstration i'd have one of our young people come up and have a tray full of very expensive glasses stacked wobbling one on top of another and say now i want you to stand on one leg and hop and not drop one you know they wouldn't be afraid of physical harm so much unless they're afraid the glass would come but to break those precious glasses so there, there's a, a healthy fear and so what god is telling the children of israel it's like a good father would say is i don't want you to do anything to damage our relationship i want you to be fearful of that don't be fearful of me don't be fearful of the signs and wonders that I am demonstrating through this lightning and thunder and shaking and smoking of this mountain. That is just the sign that I have an intense message for you to protect that relationship. The people are afraid that that's a sign he's going to kill them for the disobedience. So, so the lesson here for us in that is that, that second thing we need to know is that God, God can use the right kind of fear to drive us to make the right decisions. Now, some people, you know, they have no fear of sin. They may have no fear of God. Uh, they neither uh, revere nor respect him, uh, nor do they dread or panic over sin. 
And that the fruit of that is what we're seeing in, in the downfall of much of our society now is because there's not a healthy fear of God. You know, and I take responsibility in with all the churches throughout the ages that we lost our ability to bring the message in such a way that instilled a healthy fear of God in our generations coming up. Our culture, we are responsible as a church being led of God to, to be the proponents that bring that to the nation we live in. And listen, I know that they have to make a choice and sometimes you shake the dust from your feet and move on like the scripture says, but we have to at least take responsibility that the generations coming up that are not in church, many of them are not there because they don't have a healthy fear of God. Moses says to the people, God is trying to get your attention, guys. Listen, there's something you should be afraid of, and there is other things that you shouldn't be afraid of, and I, Moses, know it personally. He's trying to tell them from his personal experience that, that you need to be afraid in, in the good ways about God. Yeah, you don't need to uh, turn, uh, you don't need to turn here, but, but in Exodus chapter 1 and verse 17, the midwives feared God more than the Egyptian king so they decided not to kill the infant Hebrew children. And Moses was the fruit of a midwife who determined, no, I'm not going to obey the king. And why? I mean, Moses would have been one of those that was killed. You know, she's, he was put in the basket and he was put downstream. And so that started Moses' whole story that unfolded into him leading the children of Israel out of captivity. But why did she do that? His mother, I fear God more than I fear the king. And I'm not going to do what the king is telling me to do. Because I care more about God in revering and respecting him than the disobedience uh, to the king and what it might bring to me. So there are fears that we should have and maybe some that we don't. And there are fears that we do have and maybe we shouldn't have. So what about the fear of foolishness? And this is where we really get into the meat of where God has taken the message uh, this time. Like everyone else, I have my fair share of embarrassing moments. Now, I didn't use an illustration here in the first service, but Ken, my worship pastor, was so gracious to give me one. Now, I don't know if he did this, what he, I'm getting ready to say he did, because he knew that the last time I preached this, I actually did have that fear, and I had to admit to someone afterwards. But I'm up here before service, right before we're starting, and he starts giving me a signal like as if my zipper's down. And I panicked and reached for it. And him and my wife and, and Shelly all got a good laugh. So I'm telling on him now. But the irony of that, because I don't think they're here when I preach this in 2013. I know they weren't here in 2013. But I preached this message in a different aspect, on a, on a different look at fear. And I kept feeling a draft and thinking that my zipper's down during the whole message. I preached this message on fear. And afterwards, I had to admit to someone, my confession was, I just preached a whole message on fear. And the whole time I was afraid that my zipper was down. See, I think deep down inside, all of us are afraid of looking foolish. For what it's worth, the number one fear when polled, listen, time after time they poll about fear, the number one kept being at the top of the list speaking in public. But listen to what number two is. Number two is the fear of death. Number one, people are more afraid if they're willing to make a list. Number one is public speaking, second is death. That means that most people would rather die than speak in public. I mean, why? The fear of looking foolish? I mean, it's the curse of self-consciousness. Maybe it's pride, self-conscious, whatever it is. I've had people in this church who would be awesome at taking offerings. 
God has blessed them. They've been, they've been good in their, in their giving and God has shown them the, one, the wonders of what he can do when you give to the Lord sacrificially. But they have a fear of standing up in front of people. So I know that I can't push too hard. They'd never stand up and do that on a regular basis. But I see a gifting there. And sometimes it's this fear of, am I going to look foolish? Or what do people think? Or I don't like how I look. It's that fear of foolishness that keeps us from raising our hands in the fourth grade because of if, what if our answer is wrong? Yesterday I went to junior Bible quiz to watch those matches and there's some little boy, reminds me of Jake uh, from Vincent's house, little cute Jake. There's a boy that looked a lot like him, had about the same personality in ways, if anybody can be like Jake. But this little boy, he wasn't, it wasn't his turn. He wasn't up there in the quiz match. But every time a question was answered, he's like, ooh, 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 until they about called a foul on him for making noise and they had to sit him down a couple of times. Um, but most of the time, kids are afraid to raise their hands, afraid to get the wrong answer. And I think it's the same thing in worship. Sometimes we're afraid to raise our hands. We can say it's because we weren't raised that way. Uh, we didn't go to a church that did that. Maybe I don't fully understand it, but chances are the real reason is, is we're afraid of looking foolish. And for some of you that don't know why we do that in our worship, why do I do that? Well, what's the sign of surrender? kind of a thing that just goes along in your heart you, that's an automatic thing if i'm surrendering you think about little children what do little children do that they aren't taught but they know at a certain point i want to be held i do this you don't have to teach a child to do that when they want to be held and when we come in and the holy spirit's moving in our hearts and we need the lord just to wrap it in his arms in that spiritual sense because we're going through rough stuff and everything why not just raise your hand and say lord just hold me i could tell you when i raise my hands i literally feel something different happen I do. It's not because the blood is now rushing from my fingers to my heart. It's because I feel the presence of the Lord doing something different because I'm surrendering myself and I'm not worried about what people think. Fear of foolishness keeps us from asking someone out because of what if they said no. Fear of foolishness keeps us from changing majors or jobs because of what might happen if we make the wrong decision. It's the fear of foolishness that keeps us from uh, the praying for a miracle or sharing our faith, and also the fear of foolishness that keeps us from worshiping God the way we could and the way we should. But here's the deal. If you aren't willing to look foolish, then you're foolish. Mark Batterson is a well-known author and preacher, and um, he actually has preached some messages that have a lot of the same, the same content uh, in it. He's, uh, he's very well-versed on, on the issue of fear. And Mark Batterson's definition of faith is the willingness to look foolish. And some examples are given as Noah looked foolish building an ark in the desert. Can you imagine? Nobody had ever seen a flood like that before. Nobody had seen that kind of rain. And this guy's building this ark out in the desert. It looked foolish. Sarah looked foolish buying maternity clothes at 90. I mean, can you imagine? Going through picking out the maternity clothes at 90. Oh, is that for your granddaughter? No, it's for me. You know, I mean, the looks and the, and the comments off to the side. The Israelites look foolish marching around Jericho, blowing trumpets. I'm sure they're standing up on those walls in Jericho being like, they think playing us a song is going to get them in? I mean, come on. And then you got David looking foolish, attacking Goliath with a slingshot. We know from that narrative that Goliath thought it was pretty foolish too and made his comments. The wise man looked foolish following that star. I mean, there's guys out there like, well, where are you going? Wherever that star is going. All right, buddy, whatever. You know? 
lay off the bottle. You know, there's a lot of people that had to look foolish following God. Peter looked foolish stepping out of the boat in the middle of the lake in the middle of the night. But think about this. There was other people still in the boat. They didn't step out. But that's faith. Faith is a willingness to look foolish. And the, re, the results speak for themselves, don't they? Because when we backtrack to those stories and get the ending, we find out Noah was saved from the flood with his family. We also know that Sarah gave birth to Isaac, which was a promise of God. And then David defeated Goliath, cut off his head, and they chased the uh, Philistines out, right? And, and then we have the wise men that found the Messiah. And Peter walked on water. Can I tell you why some of us have never killed a giant or walked on water for God? You're like, oh, pastor, come on, that stuff doesn't happen anymore. Well, things of equal, miraculous uh, things have happened and do still happen. But why aren't we seeing them sometimes in our life? Because we're not willing to look foolish. We're not willing to uh, attack with a slingshot or get out of the boat in the middle of the lake. You know, I think about, again, the story uh, Sister Hulda Buntain uh, told us when she came a couple years ago uh, during the, the holiday times. And, and Sister Hulda Buntain's in her 90s now, and, and I think the 50s or 60s when her and her husband went to India to start orphanages in a hospital. And they had the opportunity to build a new hospital in downtown Calcutta. And so as they were doing that, they began to dig down and found out that that the foundation is beginning to fill with water. And they told them, hey, you know, it's going to cost you way more than you anticipated. An astronomical amount because you've got to do something different because of all this water. And so, and so Holda Bentain's uh, husband, Brother Mark Bentain, took out a little Bible and he tied a string onto it. And he told everyone there, even the construction workers, gather around. And he said, I'm going to begin to lower this Bible into the water and I want everyone to begin to pray. So he lowered the Bible in the water. When it got into the water and they're praying, the water immediately began to recede until it was dry. And to this day, it's the driest basement in all Calcutta. The hospital's still there. You see, I, I wish I had great faith, but sometimes I think, you know, my OCD about taking care of things, I, I would be the one standing there saying, oh, wait, you're going to ruin that little Bible. Don't do that. Let's find some something else. Let's pray, but don't do that. You know, just if you think I'm crazy about that, just ask my wife about when we got married and our first argument about Teflon pots that I had before we were married and metal objects touching them. Um, so, you know, I have this thing about a fear of ruining things. And I go to great lengths to try to keep them in new condition. So um, normal use doesn't seem normal to me. And so we have these fears and these things that can debilitate us or cause us to miss out on what God's doing. So I believe that's why we don't see those type of things happen in our lives. I think of 2 Samuel chapter 6. It's kind of, um, it may be an isolated incident, but I think it reveals why God used David in such historic ways. David had just been crowned king of Israel. And he had defeated the Philistines and he had recaptured the fortress of Zion and and he was bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. For the Jewish people, for God's people, nothing more significant at that time than the Ark of the Covenant because it had the glory of God residing with it. So all that to say this, the greatest days of his life were right then. And 2 Samuel 6, chapter 6, verse 16 says, But as the Ark of the Lord entered the city of David, 
Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked down from her window in which she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she was filled with contempt for him. So let me make an observation here. When you get excited about God, don't expect everyone around you to get excited with you. Here's why. When the Holy Spirit turns up the BTUs under you, gets you uh, burning with the a, a, a passion for God, and it disrupts the status quo, some people will be inspired by what God is doing in your life, but some will be convicted. And they will mask their personal conviction by finding something to criticize. And, and, and so we criticize in others what we don't like about ourselves. There's times when revivals have broke out in areas and the church growing and people getting saved and other churches refuse to go out of, out of fear that they'll find out they've been doing it wrong or whatever it is. But jealousy and other things and pride step in. But right here, this lady, Michael, she is dripping with sarcasm. In 2 Samuel 6.20, says that David went home to bless his family. And Michael says, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of the slave girls. A little sarcasm there. Laying on thick. Oh, you've really distinguished yourself, king, by dancing in front of the slave girls, taking your royal robe off. And here's what impressed me about David. He wasn't afraid of looking foolish. He wasn't afraid of taking off his royal robes and dancing without hindrance, without inhibition before the Lord. And think about the circumstances. I mean, David was newly crowned king of Israel. If you've ever been in a new position that someone else had before you and they did a good job by people standards, I mean, understand what, what the previous king had done wrong too, but, but he is following a pretty strong, influential figure. And so this was his first, uh, first stretch on the job, if you will. And he had a reputation to protect because of his past being successful for the Lord. He had a crown to represent. And kings don't disrobe and dance. Shepherd boys do, but not kings. And so no one knew better than Michael. Why? Because she was a KK, a king's kid. She grew up in, in, in the palace. She knew the protocol. She knew what she believed a king should act like and i'm guessing that saul was very kingly in fact i think saul probably woke up with scratches on his head because he wouldn't take his crown off he probably slept with it on and his robes so saul would never disrobe out of his royal garb and i think it's a powerful symbol here moses threw down his shepherd's staff to prove god's power and that staff symbolized his identity and security in the same sense that the royal robes symbolized David's identity and security now as king. He refused to find his identity and security in these earthly things, this earthly authority. He found his identity and security in God, and that is the key to breaking out of unhealthy fear. David says, The Lord is my refuge. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shield. He says, I, I shall not want. And David was afraid of, wasn't afraid of looking foolish for the Lord. So here's what David replies to Michael. This is what he says to her. It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone in his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this. And I will be humiliated in my own eyes. In other words, you think this is bad, Michael? You think me taking my royal robes off and dancing because the Ark of the Covenant has come back? You've not seen anything yet. 
I'm just getting started. It doesn't matter who your dad was or what you think about it. But the Lord is first before you or your dad. And so the New Living Translation says, I am willing to act like a fool in order to show my joy in the Lord. Yes, I am willing to look even more foolish than this. So civilized, being civilized, that's a fear of looking uncivilized. It makes me think about a scene in Rocky III. I love the Rocky movies. But, you know, as they progress, Rocky, the character who he was in the first one, was different than three. And so I love this scene where Rocky is basically seen as getting soft. He's not the hard-nosed, grow, grew up in the, in the bad part of town type of guy anymore. He's, he's made money. He's got fame. He's getting cultured. And he, was, he has achieved success. And he loses the fire he first had. And so his manager, Mick, says to him, but then the worst thing happened that could happen to any fighter. You got civilized. Right? And so when I read the gospel and you think about civilized people, there are only one group of people that I see as civilized in the Bible. And that's the Pharisees. You know, you know evidently Jesus wasn't very impressed with the pomp and circumstance of them because he had it out with them a lot. In, in fact, it seems that to me that Jesus handpicked a dozen disciples who were undomesticated. Some would have been labeled roughnecks today. They, they would have been the, the farmers or the, the, the tough guys. But I see Jesus lambasting the Pharisees and praising a prostitute who doesn't know any better than to crash a party and break an expensive alabaster jar and pour out this expensive ointment on Jesus in an act of worship right before his death and burial and resurrection. So I don't think God cares a bit about outward appearance at all other than modesty other than when it comes to leading people into temptation. It doesn't matter whether you're wearing royal robes or servant's garb. What God is looking for is people who are desperate enough to, to climb sycamore trees, to, to cut holes in ceilings and, and lower their sick buddy down, um, people to push through crowds and yell at the top of their voices and to jump out of boats and to get to Him. That's what God is looking for. Being undignified. David says, I will become even more undignified than this. And one of the words for worship in the Hebrew is halal, which when you look at the actual meaning of halal that's used for worship, it's kind of funny because literal translation means it, it means that I'm willing to look foolish, clamorously foolish, clamorously. In, in other words, it brings attention to itself, and that, that what you're doing is so out and flamboyant that that you're bringing attention to yourself and that kind of foolishness on a human plane worship is foolish isn't it some of us come in and struggle with the fact that i don't know if i can raise my hands maybe i didn't grow up in a church that did that or i i can't do this or i can't do that and we worry about it we don't realize that it's a matter of we don't want to look foolish but we're singing to someone we can't see we're raising our hands to someone we can't touch but stop and think about it. Have you ever seen someone dancing in their car or, or bebopping or headbanging in their car? Now, when I was single, a single guy doesn't do that. And you know why? Because they're single, and that might ruin their chance of not being single. I mean, you, you have these foolish thoughts like, I might be driving in traffic, and God's perfect will for my life could be next to me, and if I'm acting like a fool, she'll drive on. So, so we try to be real reserved, right, when we're single, putting on this front. But when you get to my age, when you've got the love of your life and you're happily married, you've got kids and, and you're, you're 
you got this kind of belly, you don't really care what people think. And so you're singing in the car and, and whatever you want to do, you know, you're listening to Great as I Faithfulness, but you're making it like a rock song, whatever you want to do. And you don't care what people are thinking when they look at you. But see, there's an old proverb that says, those who hear not the music think the dancer is mad. That's what's happening in 2 Samuel 6, isn't it? David hears the music, Michael doesn't. So who's crazy? Uh, David's got the song in his heart from the Lord, and so he's reacting to that. And you know, when my family gets together and we all play um, worship music like we did at the holidays, my little six-year-old girl, no one told her you should dance to this music. Our family never really danced in worship. Not that we are against it. We think scripturally there's appropriate times that God may move on someone, they dance. But we didn't tell Lily, hey, you dance to worship songs. But it didn't matter what song it was, worship, she had a special little dance for it. And so when we're at my parents' house and we're all playing and singing, she gets out and does her little dance. And you see, what happens is when we're in a bit, uh, when we've gotten rid of our inhibitions, child, uh, children don't have a lot of inhibitions because they don't have all the, the expectations on them that we put on ourselves about becoming dignified, about being civilized, about reaching levels of authority and position and power. And they don't have that. So when God moves on their heart, they just simply react in whatever way that seems natural to them. Just whatever seems to come to them, they react out of that. And that's why a child, when they start reaching for their parent, they're like, I just want to be held. And I'm thinking, their arms extend to pick me up, so this is my sign for hold me. And so when God moves on our heart in worship, whatever he impresses upon us, we shouldn't hold back because generally it's an unhealthy fear of looking foolish that's holding us back. And that doesn't come from God. All I know is this. If we had ultrasonic hearing and we could tune into heaven's frequency and hear the angels singing, uh, it'd lift our feet. I don't think we could keep still. There's been times in worship where it's not generally like me to want to dance around. When we sing, um, you know, I will run, I have those thoughts. I don't know why I hold back, but I have a feeling like I should just run around. Uh, when, when we're up here and we're singing about dancing or, or kneeling before the Lord, I'm seeing this in spirit and truth to the Lord, and sometimes I feel like a liar because I stand still. And I don't know about you, but if you open your heart to let God do those kind of things to you, you'll start having the same thoughts and the same feelings. When you get to the point where you're like, look, it doesn't matter what anybody's doing behind me. Sometimes I've stood in the back on Wednesday nights. I'll come out of my office after I hear the music start, and I've spent time in prayer. I'll stand back, and listen, I'm not judging anybody, and I'm not sitting here making notes of who doesn't raise their hands or interact. But I have to close my eyes sometimes so that it doesn't mess up me tuning in to what God wants to do in my heart. Because if I see a bunch of people stand there like boards, all of a sudden it either makes me want to be like that or I start falling into that or I start worrying about everybody else, why they aren't feeling what I'm feeling. So I have to just close my eyes sometimes and be like, Lord, I'm going to focus on you because I can't watch people missing out. Because I really believe when we tune in to what God's trying to do in our hearts in worship, I don't think we can stand still. Whether it's raising your hands, whether it's pacing, whether it's moving, I don't think you can. I don't think you're designed that way. When we read through Revelation, what we've been doing on angels and see what goes on in heaven for, uh, that's been going on forever through eternity since angels were created, they're calling holy, holy, holy. They're calling out to the Lord. I, I don't see how we can, knowing that we are designed to worship God, I don't see how we could keep from it. So what's happening in 2 Samuel 6 is David hears the music, Michael doesn't. So who's crazy? 
Second Samuel 6.20 says, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of the slave girls like any indecent person might do. David took off the royal robes, this picture of worship. And worship is disrobing in the sense of getting rid of our pride, getting rid of our fears. And, you know, many children will go right out the front door when they're little, start naked, and parents just panicking, going to chase them down the neighborhood because they don't think anything's wrong, right? Well, it also reminds me when we go back, think about in the garden. What happened the nanosecond after Adam and Eve sinned? Their eyes were open and they were aware that they were naked. But God's plan was for them to never think that was wrong. Uh-oh, Pastor CJ's getting ready to start a commune. He's, he's starting nudist calling. No, I'm not promoting that. I'm just saying that God in our spirit wants to be totally naked before him to release our inhibitions, to forget about what society says is normal. In the book of Acts, everybody would thought, they thought they were drunk when they began to speak in tongues because it was, it was worship they didn't understand. There's unbelievers, and I'm sure believers alike, who questioned what was going on. Remember Jesus said you must become like little children if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven? And I think this is one dimension of, of that. We need to become less self-conscious and be like little children. The ha- happiest and healthiest people aren't afraid of looking foolish. You know, a lot of us, if we, we get down to it, some of us may not have had happy childhoods, and I don't want to take you there. But, but for those that had a very happy childhood and fond memories, you know, in my life, there was a time in Nebraska when I was little when the only agenda of the day was going out making a fort in the summer or a snow fort in the winter and throwing snowballs with the mean kids. That was about all I had on the agenda. I didn't have, you know, bills and responsibilities and all these other things. And life was happy. Unless you got in trouble by your parents and got talking to, there was nothing that was a downer. It was just a matter of what you could find to entertain yourself. And so the Lord wants us to be like children that we come in with all these burdens and cares into the worship scene. Worship doesn't just happen here. It should happen in your home, in your car, wherever you are. But when we come in here especially with the support of others and with a worship team trying to lead us into worship, it's the last place and last time ever that we should let things crowd into our heart and and bring us into some type of bondage where we can't be like little children, let loose and say, God, do something in me because tomorrow work starts again. And I'm getting trapped in this cycle of this earthly world and all the things that entrap me. And I need a little bit of heaven in my life. I need a little bit of your kingdom come here on earth in my life and in my heart. I need to be refreshed. I need joy back in. I I need to be able to laugh like I did when I was a kid and relax and be able to just rest in you. Unhealthy and unholy people are trapped by a fear of looking foolish. Genesis 3, 7, as I said, describes what happened right after Adam and Eve sinned. They knew they were naked. And the moment they sinned, they become self-conscious. And, and in other words, self-conscious isn't just a, it's, it isn't just a curse. It's part of the curse. It's literally part of what originated with sin is that whole thing of being self-conscious and, and worrying about shame. You think of spiritual maturity as a continuum. One side is God-consciousness, the other is self-consciousness. And they war against each other all the time. Our, our, our spirit wants to stay God-conscious because God has stamped on our heart His image and it wants to focus on Him, but our self-consciousness that comes from this world wants to try to inhibit that. It wants to try to interrupt that. Ephesians 5.18 says, Don't 
be drunk with wine. It said, let the Holy Spirit fill you and control you. It's relating being in the Holy Spirit like drunk people. Uh, and drunk people act uninhibited. And so the right way of being filled with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit helps us overcome ungodly inhibitions. So David is intoxicated with God. His dance is divine madness, and he takes off his royal robes and loses all inhibition and humiliates himself before God. But many times we're too preoccupied with ourselves. And that's what keeps us from worshiping God the way we could and should. And I love another definition of worship I've heard. Worship is the strategy by which we interrupt our preoccupation with ourselves. It's a way of getting over ourselves. Getting into worship to get over ourselves. The greatest moments are those moments when we lose our self-control in the presence of God. I really hunger for a time at New Song when, when we have such an atmosphere where people come in who maybe haven't really adapted to the culture and, and all that new song. And all they know is they walk in, they feel the presence of God, and maybe they aren't even raised this way. And next thing you know, like, why am I doing this? Why am I dancing around? Why am I swaying? It, it's not because of good music. Maybe it's not even during the worship time. Maybe it's, you know, all of a sudden during the Word of God, something from the Word of God uh, propels someone to feel like, I just need to raise my hands to God. And I hope you know from the leadership side, from God asked me to be the shepherd of this church, my heart hungers for that. You should never feel like you can't express yourself in worship because one of the pastors you know, going to be disappointed or uh, I'm going to look foolish. Listen, part of my job too is to keep a watch to make sure things don't get out of, out of the spirit, if you want to say it that way, where people start acting to draw attention to themselves. And scripture gives us guidelines for, for the church to be able to handle that. If someone just in a moment of, they just kind of get into this fleshly mode and they, they start dancing. It's not about the Lord, you know. Those are tough things too, but the tougher thing is getting to the point where God can move on your heart to express yourself in worship as you should and what he moves on you to do. So my challenge to you this week is this. Don't lose this sermon by tomorrow morning, okay? I, I know that, that sometimes it's difficult to, to capture everything and, and to let it soak in, but Take time to spend in God's word and worship. If we begin to pray for services days before they happen with an expectation that God is going to do something in our lives and not just wait till Sunday morning or Wednesday night and show up and just say, well, whatever happens, happens. But if we prayed and believed that God is going to do something in our lives, that's how revival starts. It's in the heart of the individual. Mark Bastian also writes a book called The Circle Makers where he talks about that, you know, that at one point, uh, one person is told, uh, how do you get revival to start? Well, draw a circle around yourself and don't leave it until revival starts in that circle. The idea is it starts with our anticipation of God doing something. Losing our inhibitions to, to finally just not worry about foolishness and looking foolish, but say, God, do something crazy and wild and new in me. Not for show, not just so I can say it happened, but to literally change the course of my life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, God, that you are doing a work in our hearts and through your word, God, that we are learning to totally release ourselves to you, to not worry about looking foolish or, or uh, what people will think. God, that fear factor that keeps us from fanatical worship. I'm like, Pastor, I'm not comfortable. Some here may be thinking as we're praying 
enemy's already warring with you, saying, I, I don't know if I like you using the word fanatical, Pastor. I don't think we should be fanatics. Well, it's all in perspective. If it's the Lord doing it, then I want to be fanatical. If the Lord's doing it, I want to look foolish. If it's the Lord, then I, I want to look crazy and I'll look drunk. I'll Whatever God wants, but I, I don't want to be held up anymore, Lord. I don't want to be I don't want to be like the Pharisees where I've just totally lost touch with your spirit and how you want to move in us. God, I want you to do something new and fresh in my life every day. I want to worship you with all my, all my heart, all my soul, everything within me. Lord, I pray we'd all hunger and thirst for, for you to do something like that in all of us that, God, we'd all be able to just let go and worship you. And I thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Love y'all. Make sure you come Wednesday uh, if you're available. And uh, 6.30 we'll have another time of worship in the Word. And uh, just keep letting go. God wants you to keep letting things go. He'll, he'll, he'll bring a different perspective into your life about worship and about serving Him if you stay teachable. You stay ready to absorb whatever He has for you, but you've got to let your heart be softened, not worry about what people think. Love you guys and pray you have a blessed Sunday. Amen.